one year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kiev, perhaps even the end of Ukraine. You know, one year later, Kiev stands and Ukraine stands. Democracy stands. One year ago, Vladimir Putin launched a war of aggression and a war of choice against Ukraine, and he expected it to be a cakewalk. It wasn't. Rather than a quick shock and awe assault that would spark regime change in Kyiv, Ukraine has instead fought Russia to a draw, driving its forces away from the capital and fighting them to a standstill in the Donbass. So what drove Putin to initiate the largest land war in Europe since World War II, and why did Russia get it so wrong? In the second of two episodes marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we'll look back and attempt to answer these questions and more. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Estonian capital of Tallinn are the two authors of a recently published and must-read report, Why Russia Went to war a three-dimensional per perspective. One of those co-authors is my old friend and veteran Russia watcher, James Sher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to The Vertical, James. And the other co-author is Igor Gretzky, a research fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn. Welcome to The Vertical Eater. So first of all, James and Igor, I want to say congratulations on an excellent and timely report. As soon as I, I read it, I was urging others to do so, sharing it widely on social media. I don't know if you got a little bump from that or not. But before we dive into the report, I first wanted to get both of your takes on the events of the past week. U.S. President Joe Biden's visit to Kiev on Monday and the dueling speeches by uh, by Biden and Vladimir Putin on Tuesday. James, what was your takeaway from this, this very momentous week? I thought that um, Biden's visit was symbolic, important and revealing. It was symbolic because uh, the key issues, including the issues in contention, particularly uh, the type of weapons supply to Ukraine, were discussed in Zelensky's visit to Washington and without much progress. Um, the visit was important, nevertheless, because it was a very dramatic demonstration of the enduring nature of the U.S. commitment. You can't you can't walk away from it after that. Uh, it was also a powerful signal to Ukraine's armed forces and society. And because it also upstaged Putin's speech, which with one exception was uh, predictably delusional uh, and said very little and said nothing new. The one exception, of course, was his announcement that Russia would no longer... Uh, Russia would suspend participation in the New START Treaty. And apart, and apart from everything else, that is a personal slap to Biden, who made that his first major step coming into office 
and the pillar of his commitment to a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. So it underscores yet again, Putin is not interested in such a relationship. How did you see the speech as performance? This is a, this is a format that Putin once excelled in, um, but I was pretty underwhelmed. I, 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 in a commentary for the Atlantic Council, I wrote that like a washed up rock band past its prime, trying unsuccessfully to play its greatest hits, Putin's performance was predictable, flat and unconvincing. This was a speech by a leader who is losing a war and is trying to convince himself and his nation otherwise. What, how did you view the speech as performance? Because I, I don't. I think he kind of lost his mojo. That is not. I agree with you. It didn't surprise me. Yes. Uh, well, I I do agree. Putin uh, didn't look confident, and he didn't mention the goals of the war against Ukraine. Uh, we haven't heard anything about uh, the denazification, demilitarization of Ukraine, and uh, in general, he practically said nothing about Ukraine. But instead, uh, Putin uh, uh, talked a lot about the West, and he uh, he was trying to justify the uh, the decision to attack uh, Ukraine. Uh, but if I may, I would like to draw your attention to the focal point of uh, his speech, that is the uh, his statement about the suspension of Russia's participation uh, in the START treaty. Well, it's it's not a secret that uh, um, that the more complex and, and, and risky the situation looks for the Kremlin, uh, the more often it uses uh, opaque hints about the possibility of a major uh, nuclear conflict. And uh, Putin's, Putin knows that uh, there are politicians in the West who are very perceptive to such rhetoric. Uh, you, I would, I don't know, using. Hockey terminology, I would even say that he's trying to score with the help of political forces in the West that sympathize with Russia. Uh, as a rule, the extreme left and the extreme right movements. Uh, and uh, with every hint, every mention of a nuclear apocalypse by Moscow, the, uh, those movements, those politicians, they resume efforts to convince their governments of the need to make concessions to Putin. As a rule, as a rule, they say that Russia is capable of even greater destabilization than uh, uh, what it what it does in Ukraine. But paradoxically, those uh, in German uh, there is a such word, Russland uh, Verstehr, that is sympathizer. Russia uh, sympathizer, yeah. Yes, they. It's interesting that they consider Putin not a madman, but quite a strong and uh, rational leader. And this means that even they uh, understand that Putin's nuclear rhetoric is a calculated bluff. Otherwise, they would have been very frightened with what he does. That is, indirectly, uh, by indirectly fueling the topic of a nuclear apocalypse, the Russian leadership and Putin, namely, um, uh, is trying to sow doubt and fear among the Western countries, undermine their unity, and uh, destroy their solidarity with respect to Ukraine. And these are the goals pursued by uh, Putin's decision to suspend participation of Russia in the START treaty. Yeah, I don't think his nuclear rhetoric is actually working anymore. I've seen, I've noticed a discernible shift 
um, here in the U.S. Uh, that, that, that the administration doesn't seem as worried about nuclear escalation as it did earlier in the conflict. And this is just another reason why I say this is like a washed up rock band playing its greatest hits and not playing them very well at that. Um, moving on to the report, um, the three dimension. Again, this was an excellent report. We will have a link to it in our show notes. Everybody should read it. Um, but let's just jump into it now. The three dimensions you say that shaped Russia's outlook uh, were geopolitics, civilizational identity, and internal governance. So what I wanted to do is take these in in turn. Um, in terms of geopolitics, uh, you write that, quote, buffer zones, quiet states, and the limited sovereignty of neighbors became endemic to Russian geopolitical thinking in imperial times, and that Russia has little experience of living with neighbors who are both friendly and independent. James, starting with you, how did, the, how did Russia's perceptions of geopolitics shape its decision-making and the events of 2022? Well, uh, two vignettes. First, in 1993, NATO Secretary General at the time, uh, the rightly revered Manfred Werner, uh, went to Moscow and he met uh, the Russian Federation's first ministry, Minister of Defense, Pavel Grachov. And Grachov had a big map and he said, let me show you how things look to us. This is our space. And he pointed at that whole large territory that is now called Ruski Mir, the Russian world that encompasses the former USSR and sort of liberally goes off into eastern, uh, the fringes of, of East Central Europe. This is the historical West. This is yours. And then he pointed at all the countries in between that are now, of course, all members of NATO and said, we believe this should be a gray zone. Well, none of this has changed. The vocabulary has changed. It's become more institutionalized. It's become, you know, it's become a very well articulated policy. So that's number one. Number two, there's a very old Russian expression that Igor knows as well as I. Which means Ukraine will never be able to stand by itself. It shouldn't be, it can't, and it shouldn't. And therefore, if it does, it's because external actors are enabling it to do so. And that has always been the position, starting with Poland, Austria-Hungary, now the West, and everything has been seen in that light. Russia, until before 2013, was trying, by, was, was trying every technique of what I call waging friendship with Ukraine, using covert coercion indirect coercion, but so-called peaceful means to align Ukraine with Russia. And again and again, this failed. And therefore, when Yanukovych fell from power, we had Crimea, we had Donbass, we had um, everything else. And it was only force, the Russian military offensives of 2014-2015, that uh, resolved some of Russia's problems. And yet this Minsk Accord which was meant to be a dynamic thing and undermine Ukraine further um, and make its cohesion impossible, by the end of 2020 was seen as a dead end. Because contrary to all expectations, Zelensky, the new president, uh, was very pugnacious and instead of making new concessions, made new demands and uh, Merkel and uh, Merkel and uh, Macron uh, were not dissenting from him. 
So in uh, geopolitical grounds, all of this was coming, uh, all of this was coming together. And at that point, last point I'll make, by the end of 2013, I think it is fair to say that NATO and EU enlargement, which were seen as two facets of one thing, Western democracy promotion, um, and coercive diplomacy, and military intervention, and regime change were all seen as synonymous with Western policy, and all these different threats were fused together into one overarching one. So the consequence in 2014 was war. That war didn't produce its results. You then have the stage set after fresh disappointments for the war of 2022. Igor, your, your take on the geo, you, you, you have anything to add on the geopolitical? I've got a couple of things I want to drill into here, but I want to get your, your top line, your top line take on what we should be focusing on here in the geopolitics. Yes, uh, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, I believe that James's uh, um, notion of uh, uh, of this uh, coercion to friendship perfectly reflects the essence of Russia's foreign policy with regard to Ukraine. But yes, of course, geopolitical considerations they play extremely important role in uh, the decision making uh, when it comes to Russia's foreign policy with regard to post-Soviet states. Um, in fact, the perception of the world, of the international relation by the Kremlin's political elite uh, didn't change that much since the Soviet times, actually. Putin um, and his associates, they believe that uh, uh, there are six to seven great powers who are able to... Uh, to, to project power abroad, and they are eligible to have to uh, to have uh, spheres of influence. And uh, um, since the very collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian political elite believed that all Soviet states uh, comprised the Russian spheres sphere of influence. And uh, they believe that it is a battlefield, kind of geopolitical battlefield for influence with uh, the West. Um, even, I mean, many, many in the West believe that uh, um, in, at the beginning of 1990s, uh, something had to change in Russia. Yeltsin came to power with a team of young politicians, experts, economists, the political analysts, but uh, in fact, they had the same vision uh, of the international relations. Um, let's say Kozarev, who back in uh, spring 1992 believed that Ukraine uh, is too dependent from Russia to be independent. And uh, um, I mean, in, in, in January 1992, and then in uh, the end of uh, 1993, there were two commissions uh, established by the Russian parliament. Uh, the aim of those two ad hoc commissions, uh, the, the main aim was to uh, denounce the Soviet documents with regard to the uh, transfer of Crimea from the Russian, uh, from Russia to Ukraine. And uh, Kozarev uh, found those the 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 um, eventual reports of those commissions uh, 
balanced. That is, he accepted that. Mm-hmm. So, so um, whether I mean, th- th- there is a uh, kind of habit, and you know, it was uh, uh, natural for the Western analysts to uh, differentiate between several groups of influence. They do, like I don't know, uh, the moderates, the um, communists, the revisionists, uh, or uh, neo-imperialists or Democrats, but all of them had, I mean, all those groups, they had the same vision of Ukraine and of the post-Soviet era in general. Yeah, no, there's a saying that Russian liberalism stops at the Ukrainian border, um, actually. And I, I wanted to drill into this. One, there's one aspect of this I, I really did want to drill into, and that is the nature of the threat perception. I mean, we're all familiar with the Russian concept of strategic depth, this need to have pliant states on your on your Western borders. The lack of natural barriers creates this feeling of vulnerability. In this day and age, what is the true nature of this threat? Is Ukraine moving into the Western sphere, joining Western institutions? Is that seen primarily as a military threat or is that seen as a it's bad to have this example of a successful European country on our borders? Or are those two things, James, are those two things just not do they not differentiate between those two things? Well, well look, the reason we one. One of the um, implicit parts of our narrative in setting out these three separate dimensions is that they overlap. Mm -hmm. They reinforce one another. Uh, So, uh, yes, absolutely. An example of of Ukraine as a a completely Western-orientated country and what that means internally for Russia is not unimportant by any means. But on the strictly military geopolitical side, Do not underestimate the tenacity of deterministic worst-case thinking. Um, It was when Partnership for Peace was set up by NATO in 1994, I believe, it was was because we did not know what to do with all the demands um, of newly independent states for becoming NATO members. And so this was kicking that question into the long grass. Not for the Russians. They saw this immediately as a firm intention to enlarge NATO, and they saw it as a precursor to NATO enlargement. And when there was eventually NATO enlargement, aha, you see, we were right. Then you assume that the purpose of Ukrainian partnership and of a pro-Western Ukrainian, um, uh, of a Western or European-orientated Ukrainian political system will be to incorporate Ukraine into NATO, and that by definition means the Black Sea Fleet must leave, Crimea, NATO bases arrive, um, Russia's, many of Russia's top analysts that were closest to the state were talking about this as if all of this was inevitable. I participated in the 1990s in meetings in NATO headquarters where it was abundantly clear NATO had no intention Mm -hmm. of either kicking the Black Sea Fleet out of Crimea, let alone putting bases there. If you mentioned this thought to anybody attending these meetings, they would have thought you were mad. But in Russia, it was axiomatic. So there is this, it's all very logical, very deterministic, but 
based on a number of deep misunderstandings about how West, how pluralistic Western elites are and how they think. Igor, I know you um, you studied you study Russian Ukrainian relations, um, and actually, I, my understanding is that you're one of the few Russian scholars who actually speaks Ukrainian. How do you see this issue this this issue of the threat perception? I mean, can is it is is the core thing that Russia just can't deal with the idea of an independent Ukraine, or is is there is there a real sense of military threat there that they feel that they perceive sincerely? Yes. Um... First of all, I would like to say that uh, the Russian political and military leadership never perceived Ukraine as a military threat, but um, they believed that Ukraine as a kind of semi-independent state may fall in the control of the West and may be used as a tool to undermine the political regime in Russia. This. Uh, was uh, this became evident uh, in uh, 2004 when Vladimir Putin described um, uh, refer- referring to the 2004 Ukraine Orange Revolution? He said that it's a plot designed by the CIA, mm-hmm. and uh, which has which has never been before. I mean, uh, uh, in 2003, in autumn, when uh, the Georgian Revolution of Roses. Uh, happened. Uh, Putin blamed the Georgian leadership, the Georgian governor, Chevardnadze, uh, for not conducting democratic reform, for not addressing people's needs. And uh, this was the general, I mean, shift uh, in uh, Putin's rhetoric. But when it comes to uh, earlier periods, Russian politicians referred to Ukraine as a, there was a broad, broad picture which was shared by the majority of the political establishment that Ukraine has no uh, significant resources to develop its economy. It is mostly poor country. The corruption prevails among different layers um, in the different layer, layers of uh, society, and uh, it's it's generally it's. The perception of Ukraine as a weak state was actually dominated, uh, both actually the Russian population and the Russian leadership. So uh, they did not perceive Ukraine as a military threat. Rather, they wanted to keep uh, Ukraine under Krem- under the Kremlin's control. So all of this talk... Go ahead, James. Before we lose the point, though... They did see, after a certain number of years, they saw the West as a military threat. Mm. And that's why they viewed Western intentions in Ukraine um, in very uh, in very negative and disturbing terms. Right, and they don't distinguish... And, and I'm sorry. Go, ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Brian, let me add just one huh? more sentence. As to, indeed, um, one brief follow-up. Um, the, uh, uh, within the... The, the 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 picture of uh, the Russian leadership on uh, international relations. There is no NATO. There is no European Union. Uh, NATO is a synonym to Washington and Russia's political vocabulary. This is important, in my opinion. 
Right, and that's another misperception because anybody that's spent any time with NATO knows the United States does not always get its way. Uh, exhibit A it would be the Bucharest summit back in 2008 when the United States was pushing for NATO and Georgia to get membership action plans, and they did not. The U.S. did not get its way there there at all. I mean, you're certainly right, eager to point, point to 2004. That was the the Orange Revolution really was the decisive breaking point. In fact, in the Rose Revolution, if I remember correctly, it was the then Russian foreign minister, Igor Ivanov, who went to Tbilisi and brokered the basically the, the shepherd Nazis stepping down. So it was the it was the Orange Revolution in 2004 when we really saw this really, really sharp change in um in um in in rhetoric, why why was that? Was it just because it was Ukraine, or was it that maybe there were fears? Now now we've had two color revolutions. There might be one in Russia. We got to put it. We got to put a stop to this. Well, um, um, I believe that uh, we have to add one more detail that uh, Igor Ivanov left his office in uh, April uh -huh. 2004, and uh, he was succeeded by Sergei Lavrov. Right. And uh, Igor Ivanov is a, a minister um, who um, promoted the so-called big treaty uh, between Russia and Ukraine. He uh, was trying to persuade the members of the Russian parliament to ratify it. Uh, and the ratification process, uh, uh, well, initially it was not successful, but then Igor Ivanov invited his uh, colleague and friend, Yevgeny Primakov, to the sitting, sending a signal that uh, his view, his position is backed by heavyweights, by the mm -hmm. Russian political heavyweights. And uh, the parliament ratified eventually this treaty. So Ivanov, he uh, was in favor of uh, a pragmatic relationship with uh, Ukraine. Uh, but uh, Putin was not happy with how he dealt with the situation in Georgia and sacked him. In fact, what happened at that time, I believe that Putin, he felt threat to his political regime. Uh, he did not, uh, um, he wasn't ready to accept the very notion that people, by their will, could go to streets to protest, to express their feelings and emotions. He could not just believe it. He thought that everything is orchestrated. And if people are on the street and you do not understand who stands behind them, then you do not have enough of information. So um, he was trying to... So his reaction on the Georgian, uh, on the Georgian um, revolution was, uh, was embedded in the um, framework of, the, of his initial period of his foreign policy when mm -hmm. he was actually he, not that experienced, not that probably uh, uh, he didn't dare to say things which he said in 2007, for instance. Right. So he took some time to elaborate that. And of course, uh, well, as a former KGB officer, uh, he has own, uh, he has own patterns of, of thinking, which uh, actually uh, hinted, made, made some hints actually, and, and uh, uh, made him able to draw different conclusions. Right. And, finally, and finally, he came to the point that everything is staged.
Right, right. No, there's a bit of projection going on there because, like, this is the case um, inside Russia. This is the time of Surkov's managed democracy when everything was stage managed. So you you basically had a little bit of projection going on there, in my opinion. That's a good that's a good note to shift gears on. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at two more dimensions that shape Russia's outlook and help explain its behavior, civilizational identity and internal governance. I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the Power Radical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn are two of the authors of a recently published and must-read report, Why Russia Went to War, A Three-Dimensional Perspective. One of those co-authors happens to be my old friend and veteran Russia watcher, James Scher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. And the other co-author is the one and only Igor Gretzky, a research fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. We know that there'll be very difficult days and weeks and years ahead. But Russia's aim was to wipe Ukraine off the map. Putin's war of conquest is failing. So at the end of the section on geopolitics, you write the following. Given Moscow's assumptions, geopolitical factors provided sufficient justification for a Russian military response to Viktor Yanukovych's fall from power in 2014. But eight years after Crimea's annexation and the de facto occupation of much of Donbass, they are not sufficient to explain the events of February 2022. In order to do that, we need to look at civilizational identity and internal governance. So let's take these in turn. In the section on civilizational factor, you write, and I'm quoting you a lot to yourselves, but I think this is, this is such a well-written report that I want to highlight some of this. The proposition that Russian civilization transcends the borders of the Russian Federation is not only an article of faith in Putin's Russia, it is central to Putin's conception of the state. Putin's Russia is not only a revisionist power, but a reactionary one. Termination to rewrite to write history and rewrite it, to reshape and deny memories, therefore plays a central role in policy. The struggle to control history is a struggle to control others. There is nothing new in this. The Soviet Union was described as the only country in the world where the past was unpredictable. James, could you unpack this and elaborate on it a bit? One thing I find very interesting looking at Russian history is um, that a distinctive feature of Russian imperialism is a tendency and a need to absorb the identity of others into the identity of um, Russia itself. And this is an extremely insidious and penetrating form of uh, imperialism. And so that means it's important to control history and control memory. When Catherine the Great launched her great war for Nova Russia and the the whole southern uh, uh, the whole southern coast of Ukraine in the um, 
in the in the 1760s. She said that one of her key aims was to eradicate from memory the Cossack hetmanate in Ukraine. So this has been a dominant theme. Many have noted recently that quite early in Putin's presidency, they set up a commission to correct, I think it was under Medvedev, to correct uh, historical distortions. They set up a commission with almost identical title and identical remit, uh, I think under Alexander II in the 19th century. None of this is new. Uh, I mean, just as a footnote, I, I think Putin's whole conception of Russia um, of its international interest is vastly more Tsarist than Soviet. Yes. Uh, it, it's just remarkable. Well, Putin wants to party what, like it's 1899. What the antecedents of these motifs are. But the second factor, and Igor mentioned it, of course, in the last segment, uh, of course, of salient importance was the Orange uh, Revolution, because it is then that um, the Kremlin decided that it could not be combated with what they called a civilizational counter-offensive. And the custodian of that, what the Russians called the Kurator, uh, was Yatoslav Surkov, right. of course, who also had been the architect of the post-Minsk Donbass, uh, Donbass uh, settlements. And the third thing, um, which... I've written about separately, but it is very much part of this story, is the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, the Russian Orthodox Church is an arm of the state. Now, if at any point in Russian history you said that there's something Ukrainian about orthodoxy in Ukraine, this would be anathema. But orthodoxy in Ukraine has never had any connection to power. Right. And that makes it very different. And that explains why after the Soviet Union broke up, two separate patriarchates were, uh, were were formed in Ukraine, two separate Orthodox patriarchates, Kiev and Moscow. And in a context of where uh, there are other churches, there's a Greek Catholic Church, which is a synthesis between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. There's a Catholic Catholic Church. There are all kinds of other things in an atmosphere of enormous tolerance. Uh, doesn't exist in Russia. So, um, but a key point, cutting to the chase, is that in 2014, a number of Moscow Patriarchate Orthodox clerics in Ukraine began to urge their parishioners to join the insurgents against the Ukrainian state in Donbass. And some of them went there and fought themselves. And Igor Stirokov boasted about how many clerics he had in his own security detail and, you know, fighting with him. So this paved the way for the decision by Metropolitan, uh, by uh, the Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew um, to grant the Ukrainian church autocephaly in uh, 2019. Now, note, this is... Five, four years after the Minsk Accords were supposed to have fatally weakened um, Ukraine and created circumstances that would again have put it on a Russian trajectory. And it was having no effect on Ukraine's 
internal development at all. And all this was coming together. And then add to this this misevaluation of Zelensky. The Russians weren't the only ones who thought, oh, Zelensky is a clown. He can be easily manipulated. Well, he learned very quickly, didn't he? I don't need to elaborate that point. Right. But it became, it became clear how quickly he was learning, even before his first year as president. So, uh, I mean, uh, enough for me. I'm sure Igor has a lot to add to that. Yeah, I also I want to kind of bring history into this a little bit because um, history kind of is the subtext of this section of the report in a lot of ways, and this whole idea of the appropriate the Russia's appropriation of the legacy of Kiev and Rus, when in reality Kiev and Rus was the the origin point of three states. It was the origin point of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, um, and this notion that Russia, Ukraine, always belonged to Russia and was therefore part of the so-called Russian lands, when in fact Ukraine spent more than five centuries as part of the largest European entity of its time, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, and this is kind of airbrushed out of history. Um, Igor, anything you want to jump in on, but if you could, if you would, could, would address that as well, it would be great. Yes, I, I, um, I agree. And the general uh, understanding uh, uh, of history in Russia was that the uh, Ukraine has always belonged to Russia, has always been under control and played uh, the secondary role when it comes to uh, international relations in the region. And uh, uh, I mean, even Khrushchev, he once said that uh, um, Ukraine, Ukraine's sovereignty is only possible only within the auspices of uh, socialism. That is, and if Ukraine cannot be an independent state uh, without being a member of the Soviet Union. Right. So uh, this was the general perception of uh, Ukraine during the Soviet times before and after. Uh, I would like to add uh, uh, some more details to what uh, James said. Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainian studies uh, have never been popular at the universities among the experts it was uh, well people believed there was no need to study ukraine because it's so close the languages are very kind of similar um, well uh, ukraine uh, well ukrainians they have relatives in russia and vice versa and, and, and uh, russians they have relatives in ukraine so uh, uh, ukrainian studies they were on the margin of people's interests uh, they believe that uh, there were no need to study Ukrainian literature and language. Um, that first detail. Second, mm, when Putin came to power, he appointed Viktor Chernomyrdin for the first time since uh, the Soviet Union collapse, an unprofessional diplomat, uh, to be Russia's representative in Kyiv. And uh, I, I remember that James wrote a brilliant paper on that appointment, describing how it was and what implications of that uh, were. But uh, the crucial point is that uh, Chernomyrdin, he was not only uh, Russia's ambassador, he had a, the second status, a special representative of Russia's president in Ukraine, uh, I mean, for in, in economic issues and trade, actually. Mm -hmm. So he had 
uh, direct link with the president, the formal link with the president. And uh, he had an ability to consult with the president without uh, contacting with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, with uh, Lavrov or uh, Igor Ivanov. So many uh, uh, people representing Russia's bureaucracy and uh, Russian political elites, they perceived Chernomerdian not as Russia's ambassador, but Russia's governor to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was the point. And third, yes, Orthodox Church is important. Um, I mean, Putin... He believes that uh, Russian, uh, the, the church cannot be independent, cannot act independently. He perceives it as a foreign policy tool. Right after he became president, it was in 2001, in October, in, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he uh, uh, paid much attention to the uh, church's uh, convention, uh, the old Russian, yes, old Russian convention. And... Uh, uh, he, he intended to build an alliance with the, the Russian Orthodox Church because, I mean, he clearly understood that the, that the church uh, was not unhappy with the collapse of the Soviet Union because it undermined its monopoly uh, in the post-Soviet states. In Ukraine at that time, there were discussions whether there was a need to have uh, this Moscow Patriarchate, there was a Kiev Patriarchate, uh, there was the Ukrainian Orthodox Orthodox Church, and so on and so forth. The 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 Russian Orthodox Church, Moscow Patriarchate, they were absolutely unhappy with that, but they could not fix it uh, by themselves. They wanted the state's assistance, so they traded, they exchanged uh, this. Uh, they 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 uh, acquired this powerful, uh, gigantic state resources and assistance in exchange for loyalty, both domestically and, uh, I mean, when it comes to foreign policy. So, um, yes, I mean, the situation uh, looks very similar when it comes to the Soviet Union. Actually, Stalin... Uh, uh, I mean, under Stalin or under Bolsheviks, the Russian Orthodox Church was under total control of the government, and it was the case during the times of the Russian Empire. So, I mean, in this regard, um, the outlook, the imperial outlook of Russia didn't change that much. Mm -hmm. May I just add one yeah. footnote? The, um, in the days when I was very much welcome in Russia, and uh, 1990s. Uh, it was very clear when I spoke to groups of experts and to students even at Igor's former university, the feeling that Ukraine is part of the Russian homeland, that Ukrainians are simply a variation of ourselves, that they are kith and kin, as we would say in Britain, it was very deep. It was very widespread. It was very natural. And I was constantly being asked by professors, by others, well, don't you think this whole project of Ukrainian independence, these sentiments, they're just concentrated in the, uh, in the Ukrainian elite, aren't they? Uh, there's no social basis for the Ukrainian people have no interest in this. Isn't that right? 
And I get very quizzical looks when I say, well, no, I don't think it is. <laughs> but um, these are... So, in a sense, although Putin has his own personal obsession about all these issues, and I'm quite convinced of that, and a number of people in Russia do, on this sort of theme, when he started in Russia, he was playing to the gallery. Well, now I'm not so sure that he mm. is. But by the time the war started, he still was. It was not difficult in Russia to persuade people that everything going on in Ukraine causing these problems between Ukraine and Russia was a diabolical Western plot. And this goes back to Eager's comment about how there's nobody was interested in Ukrainian studies and therefore there was a dearth of expertise um, because the people did not see that how much Ukraine had developed and changed um, since 1991 um, when it went on this this path um, by baby steps but towards a, a, a functioning um, democracy I want to before we wrap it up I want to look at the last section of your report the third dimension of the report examines domestic governance and in this section you write that quote the primary interest of the personalized nomenclatura established by Vladimir Putin has been and self-preservation, and in this sense, you argue that there is no distinction in the Kremlin's eyes between domestic politics in Russia and the domestic politics of uh, the neighbors. Um, Igor, I know Russian domestic governance is your is your wheel horse, so why don't you get us started on this section? Um, yes, um, I, uh, um, there are plenty of things we can discuss when it comes to the uh, uh, to Russia's domestic mm, governance, and, uh, and I would just I would like to say several uh, most important things uh, to mention them. Uh, first of all, um, uh, the the key point is that there is no uh, need in differentiating between uh, the population, the Russian population, and the Russian elites when it comes to the perception of Ukraine. This is uh, something that uh, uh, they often do, uh, saying that, uh, well, um, the Kremlin decides uh, it's, it's all the responsibility by the Kremlin when it comes to uh, what uh, is going on now. But um, I remember that, uh, and this is a, a detail that uh, uh, kind of um, can be added to what uh, James uh, James has said. Mm, since mid-90s, if I'm not mistaken, until 2013, Levada Center, um, the Russian uh, independent pollster, they conducted uh, quite regularly a sociological survey and they asked the population whether they believe that Ukraine is a foreign state. Mm -hmm. And until 2013, until the very last uh, uh, survey, the majority of Russians believed, I mean, it was just 53, 57, 54% of uh, Russians believed that Ukraine was not a foreign state. Um, the second thing is that... Uh, uh, in more than 20 years in the Kremlin, Putin has built a rigid uh, 
power vertical. However, well, he cannot, he, he couldn't do whatever he uh, pleased. And when when he made he, when he made mistakes, or started unpopular initiatives, his support ratings began to plummet. And a good example is that uh, is the pension reform laws by Putin in summer 2018 against the backdrop of the World Cup, uh, Soccer World Cup in Moscow. And while people were watching football, the parliament uh, passed new laws without much discussion with the population. And um, I mean, unusually, Russians, uh, um, they started to kind of uh, uh, send signals that they were ready to protest. I mean, usually Russians make a little noise uh, and then come down. This is how Putin perceives the population. But that time it was different. And uh, the fact that uh, Putin has, uh, when, when he initiated this reform, he offended uh, that part of the electorate that has always and unconditionally supported him. That is the... Uh, older generation of Russians who are aged over 55 years old. And in a couple of weeks, they were able to collect about 2 million signatures for the abolition of that pension reform. And according to polls, 58% of the population was ready to take to the streets to protest. And these are incredible figures for the modern history of Russia. And in, in a situation like that, uh, Putin had always two basic options. The first one is a wide distribution of money, new subsidies, social payments. But at that time, in 2018, the Russian economy was uh, going through hard times. Since 2011, it has been under pre-recessionary uh, kind of condition. And uh, the real incomes of the population have been falling since 2013. And apparently, Putin believed that uh, it was premature to spend foreign exchange reserve to uh, accommodate the population. Um, the second way is connected with foreign policy. Well, polls conducted over the past 30 years show that the Russians have always reacted very, I would say, vividly to Russia's military adventures. Um, every time when conflicts began with the participation of uh, the Russian troops, uh, the support for uh, the authorities increased sharply, and this was the case with Chechnya, with Georgia, Crimea, and Syria. And uh, uh, then uh, uh, the COVID time came, and people noticed uh, Putin's paranoia, because uh, actually he was, he was uh, sitting, he did not uh, appear for mm -hmm. several weeks, and he was... Uh, uh, he was using this uh, kind of uh, costume, uh, yellow costume. Yes, and, uh, hazmat yeah. suit, yeah. Yeah, and uh, people, uh, um, I mean, the population uh, starting started to perceive it as a weakness. And uh, the last straw was the uh, protest in Belarus in August 2020. And they showed to Putin that... Uh, in authoritarian countries where everything seems to be under absolute control, even high ratings can collapse instantly. And I think in that moment, Putin began to think about starting a new military adventure in order to strengthen 
or restore uh, his uh, the legitimacy of his uh, power. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's how it uh, looked like, in my opinion. James, anything to add to that? Um, just to say that the final section of our report um, is very firm that the factors we've been discussing might have justified the war. They're the ultimate causes of it, but they don't quite tell us why it happened. And you really need to look at more immediate factors beginning um, beginning a, a late uh, mid-2020 to see that. Igor just mentioned, too, the economy in Russia and, Biel and Belarus. But the other factor beginning in 2021 is Biden comes back. Biden doesn't come back. Biden comes in. He's elected. And he first statement is America is back. Well, what does that mean? And they spent a year probing this. And with good reason, I think on rational grounds concluded, this administration does not seem capable of understanding what we really want or conducting a discussion on our basis about the issues we consider important. And on the other hand, they show no sign of having any willingness or any mettle to oppose us. So at a point when the danger is very high, the incentives for war are very high, um, uh, harsh as it is to say, uh, the administration uh, did not manage to deter Russia and did not seem to know how to do so. I'm not sure Russia was deterrable. I agree on the first point that they there was no way that this administration was going to see it Russia's way. Um, they were wrong on the second point that it had the met, didn't have the metal to oppose it. But there were mixed signals sent out early in the administration to be sure. Um, this there was a debate here in Washington over China first or China or only China, if you will. Um, there was this whole this whole movement to park the Russian relationship and have a stable, predictable relationship and all of that. There was the pullout of Afghanistan, which didn't uh, create confidence <laughs> in the administration. So there was a, there were a number of mixed signals. But go ahead, James. The issue is, it is not how fair this judgment is. What we're trying to point out is how things look right from the Kremlin. Um, and there were... Too many inconsistencies, mixed signals, complex messages, too much sophistication to create a sense that here was a formidable opponent. And then there's another factor, and it's not confined to one administration, one country. The belief that I think now we have uh, um, a fallacy, which I think has been well exposed, that you can deter an aggressive military power by economic means right. and economic threats at all. If someone is advancing on you with a gun, you don't defend yourself by robbing uh, his bank account. Right. And this combination of the sophisticated, harsh sanctions package that was drawn up and perceived military weakness, particularly in the region concerned, it's not a deterrent to war if you come from the Kremlin's history and its point of view. It's an inducement. 
Mm. Now let's to, to wrap this up and tie it up in a bow. Um, let's let's <laughs> push the let's push the ball forward a little bit now, though, James, because how the administration has conducted this war in the, over the past year, the not just the administration, the the West in general, uh, the U.S. and its allies. Do you think this is going to have any effect in changing the way Russia calculates moving forward? Let's let's wrap it up with that, because, I mean, I was frankly pleasantly surprised with the robust response that we got, not just from the United States, but from NATO. Yes, there's areas to nitpick. Yeah, I wish we sent those weapon systems faster. Um, imagine the war we'd be looking at right now if a year ago. Ukraine had HIMARS and Javelins and uh, Abrams tanks and Leopard tanks and Commander tanks and Patriot missile batteries. We'd be looking at a very different war right now. But but that said, I was pleasantly surprised with the robustness of the response. Do you see any change in Russia's calculations forthcoming? Um, Igor's view will be more interesting than mine, but there's no question we are all impressed and a bit surprised with all the Agavorki, the reservations we might have about what has been done and when. The, uh, the conc- However, the hope that existed that this would make the Kremlin rethink its assumptions plainly has not been borne out. My perception is that, first of all, by now a collective psychosis has been created in Russia itself. Um, the uh, the regime is more stable than than, than many supposed. Uh, the there is now greater resolution, the uh, vindication of the view the West is an existential enemy, and we are in for a prolonged, uh, difficult, and even dangerous struggle with the West as a whole. And Ukraine is simply the center of gravity, the main theater of operations where uh, most things will be decided. Igor's view will be more interesting than mine. Yeah, Igor, you get the last word. Uh, well, when it comes to uh, the question whether President Putin and his associates they uh, changed their uh, uh, approach uh, with regard to Ukraine or Russia's foreign policy with regard to the West, uh, since it's uh, absolutely evident that uh, his initial plan of Blitzkrieg against Ukraine uh, absolutely failed. But in my opinion, Putin is a hostage to his own mindset and his vision and his vertical of power. Because one of the problems uh, uh, is that he surrounded himself with uh, people completely loyal, but not necessarily competent. And uh, even when it was uh, evident that uh, well, the 10 days, the initial 10 days of war uh, did not come to uh, to Russia's victory. Uh, he didn't change publicly uh, the leadership of uh, Russian uh, special services or uh, Ministry of Defense. Um, he sacked one of the uh, heads of Russia's FSB directories, but uh, in a couple of months he seemed to restore uh, this guy in his position. So um, Putin is afraid to make, I mean, it, probably he thinks that he committed a mistake, probably, but he's afraid of uh, making 
uh, actions uh, to follow after this conclusion, because uh, this would may cause rifts uh, within the Russian elites. And this is something he's afraid most of all. Yeah, he's very much caught between people who want the military parade on the Khrushchev, which is not going to happen, and those who want to go back to the pre-February 24th, 2022 world, which is also not going to happen. Um, and on that note, I guess we can wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn, where it's late at night now, have been two of the authors of a recently published and must-read report, Why Russia Went to War, A Three-Dimensional Perspective. We'll put that in the show notes, a link to that in the show notes. I recommend everybody read it. Um, one of those co-authors happens to be my old friend and veteran Russia watcher, James Sher, a senior fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program of the Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy, Soft Coercion, Russian Influence Abroad. And the other co-author is the one and only Igor Gretzky, a research fellow at the Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion, for making us all a lot smarter, and congratulations again on an excellent report. Thanks a lot. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Bell is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 